If you have a Bible with you, would you please open it at uh, Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 23. It's good to be back with you again this morning. Thank you for your warm welcome uh, to Marlon and myself. It's always a joy to preach God's Word. And it's also a blessing at my age to get an invitation to come and to preach. And so it's nice to be here with you this morning. Um, The sermon title this morning is Contrasting Responses. Contrasting Responses. And if you have your Bibles open now at Luke 23, we're going to read from verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged reeled at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Well, let's pray before we turn uh, to the preaching of God's word. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have preserved it down through the centuries. We thank you that you have enabled it to be written in our own language. We thank you for the ability to read. And we thank you too for the help of the Holy Spirit to understand it. And so we would ask again that you would make your word real to us this morning and that by your Holy Spirit you would Help us to understand with our minds and write it upon our hearts and rejoice in the truth that we're about to hear. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. The cell block was a hive of gossip as each fresh prisoner brought the latest news with him. This time the gossip was about Jesus of Nazareth, The renowned prophet and miracle worker had been arrested, and soon he would be joining them in the cells. 
His fame had been widespread throughout Judah, widespread throughout Judah, with multitudes flocking to him each day to hear his teaching and to receive his healing touch. There could not have been many people that had not heard about his ministry in one way or another over the three years that he walked the streets of Israel. The sounds of the gathering crowds who were not far away must have wafted towards them for Gibatha, that vast paved area in front of the governor's palace, would have been close by. Annually during the Passover feast, the governor released one of the prisoners as an act of public clemency. The prisoners were all acquainted with the custom, although this time there was even more drama than usual attached to the occasion. The prisoners could hear the name of their prisoner about to be released. There was no mistake in it. Given the choice, the crowd shouted in unison, Barabbas, Barabbas. It proved merciful for the winner of this lottery, but not for the one who missed out. Each prisoner spent that day to the very moment of the governor's choice in a state of hope. The choice could not be starker. It was either a scourging and an agonizing death or freedom. The scourging always took place before the crucifixion, recognized as being an extremely brutal way of administrating punishment. No Roman citizen was allowed by law to receive it. Such was the brutality many died during the process. Those who survived walked the well-worn path to Skull Hill, known as Golgotha. It was always a pathetic parade of those without hope and for whom there was no return. The reality of impending death gripped the victim's mind with a stranglehold. Some, not all, longed to have the clock turned back. To escape down the hill into the dark streets of Jerusalem, to start all over again, and this time, not to repeat the mistakes they had they had made that brought them up this hill. Reaching the plateau, they fell exhausted onto their knees. The end of the road. Unmerciful soldiers, sturdy timber, rope, twine, a hammer and some large nails were nearby, the bits and pieces required for the day's events. And with the gruesome specter of death by crucifixion facing them, they were terrified. Death was close at hand, not in the comforts of their own beds, but nailed to a wooden cross. And as the nails were driven into their hands and feet, their fingers and toes curled automatically. As their crosses plunged into the prepared sockets, their nerve ends screamed out in pain. They opened their mouth to give voice to their pain, but no sound came out. Oh, the agony of death by crucifixion. The two thieves, either side of Jesus, shouted obscenities, as desperate men do when in a hopeless situation. 
there were various targets to which their accusations could have been aimed. Represented there in front of them was the hated Roman Empire, whose occupational forces were detested by every Jew. It would have been understandable had they expressed their loathing for Rome. There were the chief priests, the scribes, and elders, for whom these social outcasts had no respect. Then again, they had, they had a cause to curse Pilate the governor, who had freed Barabbas and not them. However, they did not express their bitterness and frustration against any of them. Instead, they turned on Jesus. The reason for this was plain. The taunting priests had provided both thieves with a ray of hope, a possibility of escape from the terror that they were now experiencing. And in a public exhibition of inexcusable ungodliness, some of the leading members of the Sanhedrin began to cry in Christ's messianic claims. If he was Israel's king, the Son of God, as he said he was, all he had to do was to prove it by descending from the cross. The desperate men clutched at the suggestion, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us, verse 39. The two thieves are representatives of those who normally disregard the Son of God throughout their lives, but seek his help in time of need. But Jesus made no attempt to use the powers he claimed to possess. Instead, he prayed, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Well, it was at this point things began to change. For one thief, it would mean release into the delights of heaven. To the other, it would mean imprisonment in the dungeons of hell. I want us to look at both thieves this morning in turn. Firstly, I want to look at the repentant thief. The morning had been so full of activity. Few would have noticed the appearance on the horizon of a small dark cloud. With the erection of the crosses, the priests chanted their hatred and the soldiers gambled for clothing. And the cloud gradually spread widely until it appeared to wrap itself around the sun. In place of the glaring light normally experienced at midday, an eerie dark gloom began to settle over the area like a blanket drawn by an unseen hand. And then it moved towards the whole of the sky until it covered the entire land. An unknown fear gripped one of the thieves. He saw the priests scurrying through the mud, but there was nowhere that he could go to escape. Was the thief ignorant of the Messianic Psalms, which provided a warning hundreds of years in advance of what was to be expected when the Messiah would be confronted by the snares of death and overcome by trouble and sorrows? Psalm 22, verse 16, predicted, A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. 
the thief, incapable of getting away from the center of what was happening, had unanswered questions. Why? Why was this darkness taking place at this particular time? Who was behind it? As Calvary witnessed the brunt of divine wrath revealed through nature, he was confronted with the God of creation and all of his awesome power. For the sovereign creator, no force is irresistible or object immovable. Nothing anywhere in his universe can prevent the fulfillment of his purposes. No man hinders or deters his decrees. Then a thought flooded the thief's mind. He looked sideways to the center cross. Could it be true? Was this man truly the Christ, the anointed one, the long-awaited Messiah? Some have wondered where the thief heard the gospel. We know there can be no salvation without an understanding of the essential message. As Paul states in Romans 10:14, How then shall they call on him on whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Now, it was possible that the thief would have come under the sound of the gospel as it filtered through the, the various strata of Jewish life. But there was a, a more reliable channel Golgotha itself was the finest pulpit in the land, where the truth about Jesus was uppermost in the minds of the observers, even if it was not believed. The thief could not have failed to hear the message, for it was shouted mockingly from several directions. There were the pitiless priests. They led the chorus of shameful abuse, 35, verse 35. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The hardened soldiers mocked him, verse 36. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And from a distance, the casual spectators echoed the unbelief and then presumably walked away laughing amongst themselves. The probability of the thief possessing some knowledge of Jewish belief was the reason why he did not require instant instruction about the finer points of what he was hearing from the crowd. Although his understanding would have been poor, he grasps certain vital aspects of truth. Foremost was that he desperately needed to be set free from his, his eternal dilemma. Not long before he had struggled to escape from the horror of crucifixion and the certainty of death, but now he realizes at the moment as he faces death, he is confronted by a far greater peril. He required delivery from the slavery which sin had brought about in his life. He had come to the end of his life, to the brink of an eternity, stretching endlessly ahead of him. And God's ledger would record that all that he had been in the sight of his Creator was a thief, a breaker of divine holy law, a sinner. He was not confused by the display of unbelief, even from the priests. 
For mysteriously it had been revealed to him that imprisonment does not only consist of iron bars and locked doors or hands and feet fastened to a tree. Freedom is the ability to pray, to ask for forgiveness for the tormentors, to turn the other bruised cheek graciously towards the enemy, to refuse to revile the revilers. And all these virtues the thief and everyone present had witnessed in the behavior of Christ. He was free. Even in the process of crucifixion. And his accusers were imprisoned in the sin of their evil ways. And through the revelation given to him, he now wholeheartedly believed that his only hope lay in the one who was dying by his side. With as much energy as he could muster, he shouted earnestly to a fellow thief on the other side of Jesus, verse 40, Don't you fear God? There was no response. The repentant thief's extraordinary statement testified to the transformation that was taking place in his life and character. Verse 41, We are receiving the due reward of our deeds. And far from seeking to escape from his tragic circumstances, as he had done just before, he now admits his guilt and that of the other thief. Their suffering and their execution he maintained was what they deserved. And such a confession from one undergoing the extremities of crucifixion was truly amazing and could only be understood in the terms of divine grace flooding into his soul. And this thief was now convinced in his own mind that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in making his plea to his friends, he had to mention it in verse 31, this bond has done nothing wrong. It was the position to which only divine grace can bring a repenting sinner. The public recognition of his own sin and the deity of Jesus. And in one of the most moving passages recorded in Scripture to which all those close by were witnesses, this dying thief appealed to the one he now knew to be the Christ the Messiah of God. No longer does he feel isolated in, a, in a, a grim situation, anticipating the darkness of an endless night. Now he possesses the only ingredients redemption recognizes, and that is faith and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. There must have been anxious moments. Would Jesus hear his faint cry for mercy. It may be too late. Perhaps Jesus was already dead, and so there was no time to be lost. A mere gasp from eternity, he turns to Jesus, and through his parched lips he requests, verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And declaring this simple faith, he, he surrenders his soul to Jesus for eternal safekeeping. Within those f moving few seconds, frozen in time through the, the pages of Scripture is encapsulated for us God's tender compassion for sinners with both their lives ebbing away. Jesus' reply was as startling as it was unexpected. And although he must have found it difficult to speak, remember he's dying. He replies in verse 43, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Not in some vague distant future, but within a few moments. And he would not merely be remembered, but he would be warmly welcomed and embraced. He would not formerly have understood this word paradise, but now he realized it was associated with Jesus because he said, with me. And within fleeting moments, the repentant thief's crumbled dead body would be dragged from the scene, thrown onto the back of an old wooden cart and taken away for burial. And even though he would be absent from the body, he would nevertheless be present with the Lord. He had entered into the joy of a Savior. And all that he had lost by sin, he gained by faith at Golgotha, exchanging his cross for a crown. And with his newfound friend in paradise, he was introduced to the, the sounds of eternal adoration and the, the full glare of everlasting glory. And being with Jesus is certainly far better. And to this present day, the repentant thief's experience on Skull Hill is quoted as an example of what God can do in the final moments of a wasted life. And this repentant thief reminds us, it is never, it is never too late to call out to God through Jesus for forgiveness. I wonder, have you ever grasped this realization? At the very moment the repentant thief called out, the Savior hanging by his side was burying his sin. As both were dying, one was having his sins forgiven, while the other beside him was paying the price for his forgiveness. What a thought that is. Well, let us turn our attention now to the unrepentant thief. In sermons about what happened to Calvary, this unrepentant thief is overlooked, hidden away in the shadows by the cries of Christ and the request of the redeemed thief. Yet his must rank as one of the most tragic of all stories told by history. The day that he spent in the company of God's eternal Son, the doorway to heaven, and refused to believe it. Within feet of him, the gates of paradise open wide and heavenly rejoicing over repentant sinner rang out, but enshrouded in darkness, he missed the moment. Instead, his tormented soul sank deeper into the black bar of hell. Where, if at where it all went right for the 
repenting thief. They both had turned on Jesus, we're told in Matthew 27, 44, and both goaded him to demonstrate his supernatural powers by saving himself and them. When Jesus resorted to prayer instead of power, it was at this point that the indifferent thief lost interest in Jesus. His personal safety being of greater importance to him than, than anything else. Is it not true those in need of help call selfishly upon God, not requesting mercy, not requesting forgiveness? Please get me out of this mess. Seeking rescue from their circumstances. And such was this thief's instinct. He had no intention of submitting to Jesus' claims upon him but was merely using him as a means for his own ends. He did not really believe Jesus could help him, but it was worth a try. He had nothing to lose. But when Jesus made no attempt to use the powers he claimed to possess to the thief, that was failure. From that moment, his heart having hardened any possibility of his sharing in the experience of his fellow criminal was rejected. You see, the unbeliever is only interested in a hard-hearted view of religion, whether it works, and especially whether it works to their advantage. Yet God graciously granted this rebel a final opportunity to acknowledge and revere him. He did so by intensifying the man's fear in the, the face of the extraordinary weather conditions for which the first Good Friday was noted. Gradually, the unexpected twilight turned into the blackness of night and overshadowed him. Until then, the presence of his two companions had been a source of comfort to him. But now, although that he could hear their sighs and their agonies, he couldn't see them. It was a reminder to him of the outer darkness which awaited him, where the isolation is total and the sounds are of eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth, but it made no difference. But still God the Father had not finished with him. Even as he hung helplessly in the darkness, this rebellious sinner was lashed by powerful source of forces, the trembling of an earthquake, rocking his cross, even threatening to lift it out of the ground. And as he sought to regain his breath, he, he pushed up on his, his nailed feet, causing him to gasp still further. The heavens had, above him had disappeared before his very eyes, and the thief's heart remained as black as the occasion. And with each fresh onslaught of darkness and pain, this proud and stubborn rebel turned his face toward the darkened sky, expressing his defiance. He was alarmed, even terrified, but... He was a hardened villain. Throughout his life, he had determined not to weaken in his death. Such surrender was for sissies. He had lived his life his way, and he was determined to finish his life in his way. 
Perhaps. Perhaps there had been a time years before when he might have found it a simple matter to reject his, his sinful way of life. However, with the passing of years, it had become steadily more difficult, as it does. Friendships had been formed, not easily broken. Sinful practices indulged that had become too enjoyable to lose. And a sensitive conscience had become seared. For hours, for hours, think about it. He was within touching distance of the Savior of men, whose awesome purity surely pierced the dark recesses of his soul. Even his fellow criminal had shouted across to him what had been evident to everyone who had heard Jesus, namely, that he had done nothing wrong. And this unbeliever was given a last opportunity to accept the truth, and there was no doubt that he understood what was expected of him. You see, nobody needed to explain to him this, this meaning of the word Christ. When he, in fact, used it, when he called out to him, aren't you the Christ? He would have understood, as all Jews did, that Christ, the Messiah of God, was eternally linked with the divine intention of redeeming his people, but it was to no avail. The tragedy of the unregenerated thief has been repeated in the lives of numerous sinners down through the centuries. So hardened in sin. The unbelief so brazen. The conscience so seared. The moral nerve ends have weathered and died. And here is a truth that we may not like to hear. There comes a time, there comes a point when God quietly switches off the light, locks the door, and walks away. It is the ultimate and eternal rejection. The sinner of his creator and the creator of his creature. What tragedy. As Jesus once chillingly said to the persistently unbelieving in John 8 verse 21, you will die in your sins. Surely there can be nothing worse than that. And during his ministry, Jesus had compassionately pleaded with the sinner who was heavy laden and under the pressure of a stricken conscience to come to him. And whilst he hung on the cross, the invitation was still open. And the unrepentant thief died a lonely man, engulfed in shadows where no hope penetrated, unable and equally unwilling to seek any help for his eternal soul. He could not have escaped the sounds of the ground rumbling underneath him, but it would appear he remained adamant in his rejection of the Savior right to the moment he gasped his last breath. And within minutes his wasted life, for which a further account would be made to his Maker, was over.
And just like his fellow thief, his dead body would be put down into a cart, taken and buried. But what a difference. His fellow thief was in Christ, alive in Christ. Unfortunately, he was spiritually dead in hell. Far from his sufferings ending, they had hardly begun. Everlasting torment stretched out before him. The thief's only hope had been so near, so near, and yet so far. And with Judas Iscariot, he must remain one of history's greatest human disasters. Well, this morning you have been as close to Jesus as the two thieves were. What thief represents you? The repentant thief or the unrepentant thief? J.C. Ryle signs this warning, and we're going to put up a slide so that you can read it for yourself. I grant you one penitent thief was converted in his last hours that no man might despair. But I warn you, only one was converted that no man might presume. We all know, don't we, that we're going to die sooner or later. This is one of the assurance of life. There's no escape from death. And your physical death will open a door into the spiritual realm. You will either be ushered into spiritual life in Christ, where there's no more tears, where there's no more sickness, where there's no more death, but where there is spiritual joy. Or you will enter into spiritual death without Christ and without hope. What a place you will soon be in, one of joy or sorrow. Whose company will you keep? Will it be the repentant thief or the unrepentant thief? For you it will either be eternal joy or eternal sorrow. And when you have lived a little longer, you will be dead. And then you will know that what you have heard again this morning is true. And so I very winsomely and graciously urge you to turn to Jesus while you have the opportunity and escape into him. Amen. Let me pray. And musicians will come up and lead us in our closing hymn. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you that it's living, it's real. It has a message for everyone here today in this building, and even for those who are perhaps watching in on Zoom. May you bless the preaching of your word. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I like the way this old hymn has been modernized. It's turn your eyes upon Jesus.